God, we give these things to you because ultimately we trust that you know what to do with them. You, you, you know what's needed in each and every one of those things. And, and so, God, we, we surrender it to you and ask you to help us tonight to temporarily disconnect from those things or maybe permanently disconnect from those things. Um, but help us, God, to connect to you and to your word tonight, to hear what you have to say, because we believe that uh, ultimately this, this could be a waste of time if, if we don't walk away having learned more about you, having heard from you. And so, God, we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We have been in Hebrews all year round. There's a, maybe a, a couple of you who are new and maybe just joined us recently this last week or tonight. Um, by the way, I had knee surgery last Thursday. Everything went great. Feels great. That's that. I got to walk around with this silly brace on for a month, but other than that, all is good. Um, so I, I, I was, I wanted to, to try, just because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in, in, in Hebrews, I wanted to tr- try and sum up, you know, the whole book up till this point. And so I was trying to figure that out, trying to, okay, how would I word, what, you know, what would I highlight? And, and then I, I just found this, this commentary guy had, in a paragraph, summed it up, I think, really, really well. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read that here in a second. But just to remind you that this letter um, was written, actually, most likely it was a compilation of sermons or a sermon that was given uh, that was put to put to put to letter form and and sent to um, Jewish Christians, okay, who were wanting to turn back to Judaism, wanting to to leave Christ and go back under the law. And over and over and over, the the, the author, the, probably Hebrews, is probably the most um, uh, logically written book in the New Testament in in terms of its. It's logic. It's just a, it's argument after argument after argument after argument about why that's a really, really, really bad idea to leave Jesus and to go back to something lesser. Actually, to, to leave the culmination of everything, Jesus, to go back to the things that led up to that culmination. That's the author is getting at. So here's the paragraph that I thought was really good summary. Because, because where we're at tonight is really this, the culmination of these arguments. Um, right before he gets into chapter 11 and everything really kind of shifts gears. So he says, We have come now to the culmination of the, of the author's discussion on Jesus. The Son of God is our high priest. Okay, that's that's what's, been ha- what's been happening really for the past probably six um, chapters or so. Five, six chapters. Um, he said, previously he argued, this is at the very beginning of chapter 1, he argued that the Son is superior to the angels, but for a time came to earth a position that was lower than the angels. Why did he do that? Well, he did it to, in order to identify with human beings and suffer on our behalf. Because we recognize that Jesus was greater than, than, than anyone else, greater than the angels. That's, that would have been a big deal to these Jewish people. And, and yet he lowered himself to be made in human likeness because we needed a, a sacrifice that was human but perfect 
in order to pay our debt that we couldn't pay. It says, by virtue of, a, of his identity with humanity and his suffering, the Son was appointed by God as high priest superior to the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. And if you remember back in chapter 5, chapter 7, he talks about this, 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 this high priest called Melchizedek who, who was this random guy that popped out in Genesis that Abraham met on this road and it says he was a high priest, um, a priest of the God Most High, king of Salem, that we believe might have been Salem, the city of Salem might have been the beginnings of Jerusalem. Um, and yet here's this guy comes out of nowhere and he's this priest of the God Most High and he's king. He's a priest and he's king. And, and uh, the Old Testament and Hebrews signifies this guy as being a kind of the order of which Jesus comes like Jesus is is Jesus didn't come from the Levitical priesthood that was this priesthood that God set up in the Old Testament for the old for the law and the old sacrificial system no he's he's more like Melchizedek kind of he is this priest king he's from a different order and that's what he's getting at he says um, as a superior priest he also presents to God a superior offering so not only is he high priest, but he's also, he's also the sacrifice. He's also the offering that's being given. One that relates to a better covenant and has its location in the heavenly realms. It involves the death, i.e. The, the blood of Christ. Blood was a big deal. Um, when sacrifices were, were made, the Old Testament, God makes it clear that, that blood is the life of the animal. And so um, when the blood was spilled, it was the life was, was given Death, i.e. the blood of Christ, rather than mere animals, has been made. And not just, not just over and over and over, but once and for all. So that, that's kind of what's, that's basically what's happened up until, up until now. So we're going to be in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And John, you're the lucky man up front that gets to read. Can you just read the first half of the first verse? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... Okay, stop there. Um, so, he, 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 he jumps into this idea. That this idea of shadow was actually already mentioned in, in eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. In chapter 8, verse 5, he says that the tabernacle was a shadow of the, the, uh, the heavenly realities. It, it was an earthly shadow of the heavenly realities. And here he's saying ultimately that the law, the sacrificial system, is is a shadow of the greater sacrifice, the greater reality in Christ. Um, so continue on the rest of that verse. Just that verse. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay. So so this word "make perfect" is is not the idea of it being flawless, or or someone being flawless, or someone um, never making a mistake. Like he's not saying that it it makes somebody perfect in that way. He's saying perfect is this idea of describing someone's state before God, someone's righteousness before God, and he's saying that that this this old this law um, it, it can never. You know, by the same sacrifices continually offered every day, it can never make someone perfect. It can never make someone's right relationship with God right. Um, so, verse two. 
Actually, two through three. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Okay. So, the, the, the law, the sacrificial system, um, has, has, has left people atone, left their sins atoned for and paid for, but in no way it was never meant to cleanse them from sin. It was never meant to make their conscience, um, um, clean their conscience. It was never make, meant to make them right before God forever. It was, it was something, it was a temporary thing until the next one, until the next one. Um, and, and left in a, a constant state of being reminded of their separateness, separatedness, whatever that, of being separated, ah, from God. So, so you remember, God it lives in this, this holy of holies in the temple. And, and the people had no way, they could see Him because there was a, there was a physical manifestation of his presence. There's a pillar of smoke. There's a fire, and uh, in the tabernacle, and then eventually later in the temple, um, and so they they knew where God was, but they couldn't get to him. There was a there was two curtains. There was a curtain that stopped from the outer court into the holy place, where only the priests could go, and then there was a curtain from the holy place to the holy of holies, only the high priest could go. And so there was just this distance, and there was a constant reminder. Think about it every time. Every time a sacrifice was made, it was just a, a constant reminder of their distance. You know, the, the, the sacrifice would be made, and then the, the high priest would disappear. And am I good? <laughs> you know, I mean, so th- there, was, there was always, always distance. And then the only time the community, um, the only time the, the community was, was atoned for or, ma- or, or made right was once a year the high priest would go in um, and, and make atonement for the sins of the people. And then it was like kind of a restart. It was never meant to be done again, done, done forever. It was just meant to, to cover that, that year. Um, so read, read, chapter, or read verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay. I love this, this picture. Um, I've been reading through the, the Bible this year. I committed to read chronologically through it. And, and so I, I just finished going through all of Numbers and Le- Leviticus and Numbers. And it's amazing, like, the detail that God goes, gives to, in, in the law, to make atonement for their sin. Like, it would list everything. Okay, if this happens, then this is what you offer. And if this happens, then you sacrifice this. And if this happens, this is what you do. Um, and if this happens on this kind of a day, or this happens to this kind of a person, or if this, I mean, it was, it's incredibly detailed, and um, there was, there was one particular, there's several seasons in which they would sacrifice so many animals in one week, and then so many animals the next week, and then so many, like for a, for, I think it's 13 weeks straight, they would offer, I want to say, 40 to 50 animals a week, and um, another interesting fact in in uh, when when Solomon builds the temple and finishes the temple and he's going to dedicate the temple to the Lord. How many animals would you guess? Some of you, you might know this trivia question, you Bible nerds. Um, 
how many animals did you guess he sacrificed on the dedication of that temple? Take a guess a number. Throw it out. Seven hundred. Okay. Be higher, lower. Go higher. What? A thousand. Wow, that's a lot. A hundred and forty-two thousand. Okay. It was like one hundred and twenty. 122,000 sheep and, and 20,000 um, bulls, I think it was. And so, think about it. Like, and it wasn't just slit, go, slit, go. It was, it was, okay, drain the blood. It was pull out certain things, sacrifice certain things, throw the rest over here. That's one animal. And that's, that's a process. I mean, that, that would have taken, I don't know how long. These priests were manly men. These were not, I'm not even going to say. Um, I was going to say, like, the kind of pastors that you know. But, but anyway, because I am one. Um, so, it, but, but it, it was just interesting, be, and I've been reading through, I've just been amazed at this. And, and all of it, ultimately, and this is hard, this is hard to see. Um, this is really hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to see that this is a gracious thing that God is doing, but it really is. Like God is saying, "Okay, guys, you want to you want to have a relationship with me? This is this is how it's going to have to work for now." Is and and this isn't this isn't God saying, "Ah, just kill an animal. It's not a big deal," because every everything God created was good and had a purpose and. I mean, his, his creation was meant to bring glory to him. So th- this isn't like, eh, animals are worthless, just get rid of them. It's nothing to do with God's hatred for animals or not caring about animals or whatever. This is all about God's hatred for sin and his, and his holiness. And, and I've just been amazed at that, like overwhelmed with that, this, this how big of a deal our sin is. And, and yet it says... It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This word take away, um, it's used twice in the Greek. It's the word upper, upper, ape, ap. No, I'm going to do it. Ap, no, there's a PH. Aphoreo, aphoreo or something like that. Anyway, uh, it was used twice in the Bible, and it's, only, it's always both times mentioned in this idea of taking away sins. And, um, in the idea of removing sin, in this case, it's speaking of the burden that sin placed on the worshiper's conscience being lifted in, in a decisive and effective cleansing, which, which establishes one's status before God. So it was, it's, it's not like a, yeah, it's not just, oh, remove sin. It's like, no, decisive, effective removal of sin. And, and it says, it was impossible for the blood of bulls goes to do that. So here's the idea is, well, we'll get to that question here in a second. Read 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Okay, so this is a quote from Psalm 40, verse 68. And 
we've said we've said this before, but a lot of times the early church, because of because of what Jesus has done, and because of who he is and who he claimed to be, they now rightly look back at the Old Testament scriptures, their their scriptures, and they see their scriptures through the lens of Jesus, through what he's done and who he is. And so the early church, when they would see scriptures like this, like Psalm, Psalm 40, Psalm 110, um, there's several mentioned already in, in, in Hebrews, um, they would see it as Jesus speaking, because Jesus fulfilled that. So that and, and Jesus is God, and this is God's word, and so Jesus said that. So that's what, that's what they're saying here. And what I like about this is I don't have to explain why he used this Old Testament quote because he, he kind of does. He gives, he gives his own commentary on why he uses it here in these next verses. So read, read 8 through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay. So, he, he says, you've, you've, you, neither, uh, you neither desired nor you take pleasure in okay, these offerings. Okay. So, this is a, this is a, a system that God was gracious to give His people, um, give them the law, give them the, 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 the way in which to pay for their sin in order to be in relationship with Him. Okay? And He's saying, you neither desired it, you being God, you neither desired it nor take pleasure in these offerings. Okay, so question. We have to wrestle with this. Isn't this, wasn't this good? Like, why would God give a law and a sacrificial system and then later say, yeah, I didn't really want it anyway. That's not really what I wanted. It's not, that's not what I desire. That's, that's, that's not what I take pleasure in. Why, why would he give such a detailed system and then, and then say to his people, people, that's not what I want? So, so we have to wrestle... This, which leads to another question. All those Jewish people, from millions of Jewish people that lived under this system, that made atonement for sin through this system that God gave them, what does that mean about them? Like, where is their position with God? Like, how are they saved? If he's saying that he didn't desire it and he didn't take pleasure in it and it wasn't really because it was under the law. Well, that is a good question that Drew hopefully is going to answer for us. Um, so, verse 10 is a big verse. Um, it says, and by that, they, they have been sanctified. Basically, let me, let me back up. He says, he says, I come to do your will, and he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. The, the first is the law in the Old, 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 te- old Testament, Old sacrificial system, and, and the new is doing your will, doing God's will, which is ultimately the will of um, Christ coming and, and, and sacrificing once and for all. It's expressed through His, His sacrifice, and believers are made holy through that. And, and verse 10 is a great, great, great word, great sentence, kind of summary statement of what He's describing. 
He says, and being sanctified. So this idea of sanctified is, the word is literally to be made holy through the offering. Okay, an offering needed to be given of the body. It needed to be human, not an animal, of Jesus Christ once and for all. Um, and so that, that's a common thing. That's something we've, we've been hearing over and over and over. So, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay. So he gives he gives four things for both the, the the old and the new. The first one he says is there there were sacrifices daily. Okay? Under the new it was once um, for all time. I just did that twice. Um, for all, all time. <laughs> the second one, he says, the priest stood. This is interesting. They stood, and what did Jesus do? He sat. Why is that significant? What? Finished, yeah. So, it's interesting, though, in... in this is a really interesting study. Anytime you want to, anytime Jesus is either standing or sitting, you need to take note. Like, anytime um, that's mentioned in Scripture, it's a, it's a really interesting idea, and it means it means whatever in terms depends on the context. But in this particular case, sitting means finished. Sitting at the right hand of God was sitting finished with authority, because the right hand of God would be, boom, like there's no other greater place in all of the kingdom than the right hand of the king, um, besides the king. So he's, he sits because he's finished here. They're standing because they're not finished. It's, it's a daily thing. They're, they're constantly at work. They're, there's always sin to be atoned for. It's never ending. Um, this one, he says it's good grief. It's again and again. And what does it say for Christ? I'll say this. One and done. Sacrifice. Um, this last one, it says, Sacrifices never took away sins. So they, they never... And over here, it makes them perfect once and for all makes believers perfect so that, that's this is he again he's very logical he's setting up the argument he's saying this is what you have why would you go back to this read verse 14 for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified Okay, this word, a couple, couple important words here. Word perfected, um, teleu, 
is it's a it's a verb. Okay, it's the main verb, and it connotates a past action with a with a present result. So it's it was made perfect. It was perfected. Um, it's a past action that has present results. The word sanctified against uh, hagiatso being made holy. Um, think about this salvation. Uh, in the the Bible talks about salvation as being both instant and continuous. Um, the Bible actually describes our salvation in, in kind of like three phases. We were saved, we were justified. We are being saved, we are being sanctified. And then we will be saved, which is we will be glorified. There's like the, that fits under the umbrella of salvation. It is, it is both instant and continuous. And we'll eventually reach uh, glorification. Read 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sin and their lawless deeds no more. Okay, this is quoting Jeremiah 31, which he's already done um, before, but he's, he's bringing this back up saying, it's it's again it's it's not only do we have this in Christ, but it's through Christ that we have the Spirit, which is how we are actually able to know God, and so we remove the barriers, and now He lives in us, and now we get to know Him. We know His Word, and our sins are forgiven. They they are they are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Read verse eighteen. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay. Uh, a pretty clear statement. There's, there's no longer any need for a sin offering. I like how one, one person said it. This kind of forgiveness means that all future sacrifices for sins have been rendered obsolete. Like there's no need to go back to this system. So, again, why, why would God set up a system... And then say, that's not, that's not what I want from you, ultimately. That's not, that's not what, I, what pleases me. That's what I want. This is, this is what I've given you to do. But that's not what pleases me. And then how were those Jewish people saved under that system? We'll take a couple, couple minutes break, and then we'll, Drew will get back up and help us figure that out. Okay. Uh, we are going to go ahead and jump in here. All right, so Scott left us with a couple big questions. Let me step back to kind of a pre-question to that. This is a question that I got on Sunday. Um, uh, right after church, uh, a lady came and and talked to me and she just she just wanted to ask she said I have a friend who is Jewish um, and she wanted to ask this question kind of in light of on on uh, Sunday I'd get to talk to kind of the the gospel and and, and the big picture of the Bible and, and how the kind of that that went in the Old Testament and uh, and so she asked me so I have a friend who's Jewish um, and I'm just curious how this all works like how are Jewish people saved how are the people that, that, that were designated in the Old Testament as God's chosen people, are they saved 
um, by virtue of that alone, that they are God's chosen people, or is there something else? How does that work today? And, and so I answered her, and I basically talked through what we've been talking through this year. If, if you've been in, uh, in this study with us for very long at all, the, the writer of Hebrews is fairly clear about that answer. Um, and that is that Jews um, today, just like everyone else today, are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Um, that, that is the major statement of Hebrews, that, that going back to that way doesn't work. In, in Hebrews 8, right after quoting Jeremiah 31, we just, we just read Jeremiah 31, in, Roman, or in, in chapter 8 he quotes it as well, talking about the new covenant that God is going to make. And this is what he says at the end of it. In calling this covenant new, he renders the old one obsolete and out of date. And he says what's obsolete and out of date will soon fade away. And so the, the old way of doing things, he says, is obsolete. It doesn't work anymore. Um, and in Hebrews 6, where we argued that, that the writer's warning them against walking away from their faith and walking away from their salvation, all right, um, keep in mind that he's talking to Jewish people who want to go back. They don't want to leave God and become atheists. They want to leave Jesus and worship Yahweh, God, without Jesus. And he says, if you do that, you're walking, well, you're losing your faith. You're losing your salvation to walk back into those things. And, and you guys know the famous passage in John 14, 6, where Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he says that to his disciples who are all Jewish. He doesn't say, no one comes to the Father except by me, well, except for you guys. You guys are part of God's chosen people. But everybody else, okay, well, actually, no, everybody else in this town is cool too. Um, but everybody outside of this country, okay, all of those, none of them, no, he says no one. And so we know this, that everyone, Jewish or non-Jewish, is saved not by virtue of their birth, um, but by virtue of placing their faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for them. This is the statement that we've seen throughout. Um, so here's the next question, and, and this is the one that Scott just posed. We're actually going to hit two of them that he kind of touched on. But the next question is, so what about before Jesus? How were they saved? How were God's people, how was their sin atoned for before Jesus came? Because the standard answer that I think most Christians would, would state, and, and the, the, the answer I believe for a long time I know growing up is that they were saved, that their, their sins were atoned for and forgiven through the sacrifices, through the law that was set up and the sacrificial system that was a part of that, that God set that in place to atone for and take away their sins. And so pre-Christ, before Christ, people's sins were taken away through the law and specifically the sacrificial system that was set up to atone for those things. Post-Christ, everyone is saved through Jesus alone. The only problem with that answer is the passage we just read, right? The very beginning of that, 10, 1 through 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So does that mean then that the system that God put in place was broken? That God gave them something that wasn't actually going to work. Why did he do that? What would that be? The answer, of course, is no, because of the passage we just read. Verse 4, in which the writer says, that's not what they were supposed to do. They were never intended that. Instead, he says the sacrifices were actually just an annual reminder of sin. 
So Paul didn't, or so God didn't put something in place that was broken. God put something in place and it did exactly what he wanted it to do, which is remind people of their sin. This is the argument Paul makes in Galatians 3, that the law was not meant to save. The law was meant to show us our need for saving. The law was meant to show us our sin, expose that to us, and reveal to us the, our need for that atonement, for that justification that would come by those things. So no, the system wasn't broken. That wasn't the way God intended it to be. This is kind of our next question then, a series of them. Here's our next one. Does that mean then that there's an inconsistency between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Does that mean then that, that when the New Testament comes, how do we know that these New Testament writers aren't just kind of making this up because the way they're talking about those things, the, the thing that the Hebrew writer just said there in chapter 10 doesn't sound a lot like the way the Old Testament talks about those things quite often. Doesn't talk, doesn't sound like the way God was talking when he set up the Day of Atonement in Leviticus. Doesn't sound like the way um, that... that the rest of the Pentateuch talks about the sacrifices and the way that the priests are to go about them and what they're supposed to do. So how do we know that this isn't just being made up? Here's why I ask this question. Um, I've mentioned this here a couple times, um, that I meet sometimes with these um, Baha'i gentlemen. And, and I meet with them, me along with another pastor here in town, and we meet with these. It's, it's usually two guys that we know that are kind of buddies, and they always bring a third one who's kind of usually new or, or varies or changes. Baha'is, um, the, the Baha'i faith basically believes this, um, that God has revealed himself throughout history through, and this is a big term, progressive revelation. That is that slowly over time he has progressively revealed more of himself and he's revealed himself in different periods of history through basically different religions. Basically they would say that, that the five major world religions, Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Islam, I think actually they may throw Zoroastrianism from the Persian period in there. They may throw a couple others, but those five major ones... Um, that Judaism, Christianity, Islam, yeah, that those five ones are all different revelations, different manifestations of God revealing himself in different ways, and it culminates in the Baha'i faith. Um, so, so all of these run together. They all kind of work out in one thing, to which I always like to kind of ask, um, so explain to me how this works, um, that, that the same God puts in place these two, uh, these many different religions that seem to contradict on so many different ways. And, and, and the main one that I like that we like to kind of bring up, me and my buddy, is the idea of Jesus, that they vary wildly on their account of Jesus, which is the main statement, right? Because Judaism believes Jesus to be a heretic and blasphemer, and we believe him to be God, all right? And, and um, Islam would say he's a prophet, but only a prophet, and we believe him to be God. And so those things in and of themselves seem to be crazy. Now, now the Baha'i people, they have um, answers, answers that I deem to be um, nonsensical and illogical, but answers that f fit for them to kind of explain those things. So I go to something that, that, that even they agree on, and that is, I, I, I ask them this question, why is it that Hinduism, if it is from God, why is it that Hinduism teaches... Um, that there are some people who just by virtue of the family that they're born into are inherently of less value than other people. That, that their very nature, that who they are because of maybe some past life or whatever, they get born into a lower class in which they're at the bottom of the heap and, and, and ought to be treated that way. 
This is the standard answer I get from them every time. Um, this is the problem with the two, the two regulars know this stuff and they share the answer, but every time they bring a new person who hasn't heard the discussion, so I get to hear the same Baha'i argument from the new person every time because they don't know that, that, that I've already heard this argument over and over again. But this is the standard Baha'i argument. Okay, just because, listen, the, the way God worked through history is the same way that like your school system works as you grow up. Let's say you're talking about math. In first grade, what you learn is the basics. You learn things like one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four. And as you progress, your teachers begin to reveal greater amounts of truth to you, a fuller picture of mathematics and how that works. And so you work into multiplication tables, and then you start working in long division, and then you get to high school and you're in algebra. And so now in high school, you've got all this information that's way more and, and, and bigger and more helpful than the information you got back here in first grade. But that doesn't mean that your first grade teacher was wrong. That doesn't mean that you go back and get upset at your first grade teacher for teaching that one plus one equals two. And, and my standard answer to him is that's true, but I would get mad at my teacher for telling me that one plus one equals 37. Okay? Because, that, because that's contradictory to everything else I'm learning over here. And so you can't say to me that the same God who, who created Hinduism, which says that there are some people who are of inherently less value, also created Judaism and Christianity, which says that everyone is made in the exact same image of God. And Christianity specifically, it says there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that we're all one in Christ at the churches. And so, so I can't see that these two things run together. And the problem with the Baha'i faith is that they keep saying that every religion is a new revelation and there's more being revealed. And yet what's actually happening is each of these are contradicting one another. So how do we know that the New Testament writers weren't doing the same thing with the Old Testament? Because actually that, that term, progressive revelation, that's a big Christian word actually. Christians, we believe in that progressive revelation that God reveals more of himself throughout history as it goes on. And so Abraham knew a certain amount, and then Moses knew a little bit more, and then David knew a little bit, and, and so it grew throughout time. We believe in that. So how do we know that these two things aren't just contradicting one another, that they're not working, um, that, that, that the New Testament writers aren't just saying, yeah, 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 this is really just a greater revelation of what the Old Testament was. By the way, there are actually some, um, some Christians, some actually solid Christians that I would like and stuff and, and, might, and, and would be fairly smart who do believe that, that that's actually kind of how God's working. Like, they don't believe that, that God's working through all the different major religions, but what they believe is, is that God did kind of, not contradict, but kind of change the game plan as history went on. That, that actually what you have is these different covenants that took place in different periods of history, and so you have um, this kind of Adamic covenant that God made with Adam when he came, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and, and that kind of reigned for some 2,000 years or something. And then Noah comes and he makes a new covenant with him once he gets out of the ark. And so you have that kind of reign, which, by the way, we do see this in the Bible, these different covenants that were made. What these people would say is that in each place that God has kind of changed a little bit the recognition of sin and the recognition of man's responsibility. And so it changes under each thing. And then you have Abraham, and then you have the Mosaic Covenant, and then you have Jesus. And they actually, most people who, who believe this, it's called 
a word you don't need to remember, but you can if you want. Dispensationalism, okay? That God works in different dispensations in slightly different ways. And most people who believe in dispensationalism, maybe all of them, believe that actually this isn't even the last one that we're in, that there will be kind of another age that comes after here where Israel is restored and everything is, is kind of brought to pass. Now, one of the major things they look to is the prophecies like Jeremiah 31. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And they say, see, it's coming, it's coming. The only problem is that the writer of Hebrews said, see, it came, it came. All right, so that's, but, but there are people who kind of believe this stuff, that this is kind of the way it works. And how do we know that that's not actually what's happening? I, I, I want to look back again, and we already got to see it a little bit at this question. Does the Old Testament and the New Testament teach a consistent message about sacrifice? Are they saying the same thing? Um, we got to see Psalm 40, one that was in there, and yes, in the Old Testament, God places a great amount of stress on the idea of sacrifice and how that needed to take place. And it was a very important deal. And he did institute the Day of Atonement where the people's sins would be atoned for that they could go for. But here are a couple other passages that we get to see in the Bible. This is Psalm 51, 16. This was written, it says, written after David committed his great sin, um, having an affair with Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah murdered to kind of cover up his tracks. Um, when he repents, when he recognizes what, what, what he has done and he's confessing his fall to God, one of the things he says in, in 51.16, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, um, which, would, which would have probably actually sounded a little bit crazy to some people when they first read it back then. But what do you mean, David? He doesn't delight in sacrifice. Isn't that, isn't that kind of a big deal in the thing? But this is what David says. Let me take you to another one real quick. This is Hosea 6 6. For I desire, this is God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. All right, so this is just, just so you recognize, that's a big statement to make. Because if we're saying that sacrifice atoned for sin in the same way that faith in Jesus is atoned for sin, recognize that you would never hear the New Testament or any actual Christian say that same statement about faith in Jesus. I desire mercy, not faith in Jesus Christ. I desire acknowledgement of God, not trust in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice. It, it never says that, but the Old Testament actually says this about sacrifice. One more, Isaiah 1 and um, let me give you actually, as, as I'm turning to Isaiah 1, let me give you a few more that you can kind of write down and look later. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Psalm 58 through 10, and Jeremiah 7, 21 through 24. You can look at those later, but let me read uh, Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 13 to you. Actually, I'll start back in 11 because this is good. Uh, or, yeah. Yeah, 11 was where we'll go. The mul this is what God says. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts, that is his way of saying, bringing in tons of animals to sacrifice. That I ask you, who asked you that, of that? Um, stop bringing 
bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. That was another thing that you offered to God. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, and your convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. So this is God saying, not just sacrifices, but all these calendar dates that he had given him. He said, I'm sick of them. I don't want any more of them. And, and the idea is, again, that he wants something deeper than that. He wants their hearts. He wants obedience. But, but recognize that he's making a statement about sacrifice in the Old Testament that we would never make about faith in the New Testament. And that is that I don't want it. I'm sick of it. So yes, um, offerings seem to get kind of mentioned as a big thing and an important thing. And yet we have hints all the way throughout Scripture. Whether the people in the Old Testament fully grasped it or not, I don't know. In fact, it seems that many of them didn't. But we have hints all the way throughout the Old Testament that the sacrifices were never the point, that they were never the end goal, that that was not the main thing that God was aiming after when he said those things. So, here is the last question, I think. If the sacrifices were not taking away the sins of the people, if that was never actually their intent, then how were those people saved? How did they get their sins taken away? Did just all of them go to hell? Were just all of them doomed to be condemned in that situation? How does that work exactly? How do we um, deal with that issue? I, I mentioned to you three weeks ago, the last time we got to be in the book of Hebrews, that there was a verse we hit on just briefly um, in chapter 9 that I wanted to come back to. I told you it was going to be significant. It's chapter 9, verse 15. This is the answer to that question. For this reason, the writer of Hebrews says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I don't know if you caught that. He's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant covenant. Let me read to you one that's just slightly more explicit on that before we break it down. Romans 3. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is an incredible passage if you want to kind of really get a good grasp on, on Paul's message of the gospel broken down. 3, 21 through 26. Um, amazing. Read that tonight. I just want to read to you 25 through 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, here it is, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is what Paul is saying, that what God did in Christ is he, in his patience, in his forbearance, he waited and did not fully punish any of the sins from Adam all the way up to Jesus. Not that... Not that he didn't punish those things. He did not fully, they did not get the full punishment of what they deserve for those things. He held off in his forbearance, in his great patience, held off until Jesus. And then Adam's sin in the garden, 
and Noah's sin, getting drunk after um, the flood, and Abraham's sin in lying about his wife and giving him over to the Pharaoh in Egypt, and Moses' sin in losing his patience and beating up against that rock. All of those things got punished in 33 AD on the cross with Jesus, or 30 AD, depending on what view you take of the date. All of those things, God waits, and then he punishes them in Jesus. And he says this, this amazing thing in, in 26. He did it um, uh, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I love that, that verse. To be just, that is, he always punishes sin, and at the same time, the one who justifies those who have faith, that is, he forgives us of our sin. Those two things aren't supposed to be able to go together. You can't always punish sin and forgive sin at the same time. And yet because of Jesus, Paul says, God is able to do that, that he's able to forgive all of them because all of their sin got punished in Jesus on the cross. And so the answer to the question, how were Jews or how are Jews saved today? They are saved by faith in Jesus. The answer to the question, how were God's people, the Jews, saved in the Old Testament? It's the exact same answer. They're saved by faith in Jesus. This is actually Galatians 3. I want to read that to you real quick. Galatians 3, I believe it's 6 through 8. Let me make sure I have it right. Yep. 6 through 8. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, had faith, and it was credited to him. God declared him to be righteous. Now, this is significant. And the reason Paul brings it up in Galatians is because he's fighting against people who think that you need to be circumcised. You, those of you who go to Sunnybrook, we've been talking through this for a while, that you need to be circumcised, that you need to be part of the Jewish community to be actually saved. That Jesus is good, but you also have to be like Jewish, you have to be circumcised. And what Paul's arguing is that Abraham got justified by faith before he was ever circumcised. It actually works in our case, too, because Abraham was justified by faith some 500 years before the animal sacrifices were instituted. So faith was in, act, was, was in effect before animal sacrifices, ha, uh, half a millennia before um, sacrifices were ever even in place, um, before the animal sacrifices were at work. And here's what he goes on to say. Um, oh, sorry, I lost my place there. There it is. Um, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced, this is a crazy word to say, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So this is what Paul says. You want to know how Abraham was justified? He was justified because he believed in the gospel. Now, we don't actually, in fact, I, I, can, I can say pretty strongly, I don't think that Abraham had all the details of the gospel, okay? I don't think that Abraham probably even knew the name Jesus and knew that Jesus was going to die on a cross. All he says is, this is the gospel that Abraham knew. God said, follow me. I'm going to take care of things. I'm going to make everything right. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. Paul says that that was a prophecy about Jesus because it was through Abraham's lineage that Jesus comes and the whole world is blessed. 
and the Gentiles become part of Abraham's family by faith. That's what he just said. So Abraham, all he knows is I got to trust God and God is going to do what is right to make everything is right. That's as much as he knows and he follows it by faith and it's credited to him as righteousness. He's justified. And so Abraham is justified by his faith in God, his faith in the coming Messiah, however much or however little of that he knows. And Moses is the same, and David is the same, and everyone throughout history, not just after Jesus, everyone throughout history who has ever been saved is saved by placing their faith in Jesus, not by any good that they've done on their own. And this is an incredible thing for us to keep in mind. One of the ways that I've heard it kind of said is that um, the progressive revelation, the truth of God, is somewhat like a blossoming or blooming flower. And that is that that the flower never changes, even though at various points in the day or in the week or whatever you want the timeline might be for that flower, it opens more and more and more slowly. And so Abraham only got to see this much of it. David got to see this much when in 2 Samuel 7 there was a prophecy that he would always have someone in his lineage sitting on the throne, which isn't true unless you look right here. And there was, and there is, always someone in the lineage of David sitting on the throne in Jesus. And and Isaiah got to see a little bit more of it, and Jeremiah got to see a little bit more of it, and then Jesus comes and we get to see it in full bloom and see what it is. But it's always been the flower. It's always been that same truth. It's just however much we've gotten to see of it. Why does this matter for us today? Why does it matter how Noah got saved? I mean, that's interesting to know, um, but why does that matter for us? Here's here's why I think it matters. Um, it, It matters because what this reveals to us is the faithfulness and consistency of God throughout history. That He has always been who He has been and He has always worked how He has worked. Ever since the fall, God put in plan in Genesis 3. Most people believe, most scholars or Christians believe that the prophecy that, um, that through Eve's seed that the serpent would strike his heel, this seed, but that he would crush the serpent's head, that that was a prophecy right after the very first sin that he would send Jesus into the world to save the world. That he would undo all of Satan's power in bringing sin into the world. So from the very beginning... God put this plan in motion. So it it reveals to us that he is faithful to his character and his actions can always be seen to be the same. And it reveals to us when we read the word of God that it is not just some mix of rules and a little bit of poems over here and some stories that are all kind of blended together. It's actually one big story pointing towards one key place in history and that is Jesus himself. Um, And so we can see his faithfulness, we can see his um, consistency, and we can trust in this, um, that that basically what we said, well, here's, here's kind of another crazy thing. Not only is it true from the beginning, okay, that God's plan was Jesus, Revelation 13, 8 says this crazy thing. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundations of the world. From the creation of the world, he's the Lamb of God who is slain from them. So, so, so what John seems to be saying there is that in a way that I can't fully get my mind around, okay? I'm sure it has to do with God being outside of time himself, that the, the slain of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus took place somewhere like here, in a sense, okay? Recognize it. It took place here, but in God's 
in God's view as one standing outside of time, as one who's not caught in year by year as human beings are. He stands outside of all of it, and he's able to see that not only does Jesus' sin roll over, or Jesus' sin, sorry, Jesus' <laughs> sacrifice roll over and cover sins from here on out, but it actually it was rolling over and covering all this. It's what, it's what this writer calls the trans-historical nature of Jesus' sacrifice. That is, it covers all of history together. And so it shows us that God is consistent and faithful to his word and who he is. It also shows us this, that we, we, we have no reason to doubt or fear or wonder if he'll ever change on us. Or if the, if the rules, if the game plan is ever going to change. It's always been this way. And so when the writer of Hebrews says that he takes care of sin once for all, he means it. That, that once for all... Um, from there on back is covered and from here forward is covered and and there's nothing that that is going to take place that changes that that's also a great reminder by the way there are people who who have this I I think they would give the right answer when it comes to um, when it comes to this issue I think a lot of Christians could give the right answer and yet they live in this weird kind of freaked out um, paranoia about their sin there are people who believe one of the reasons people believe that if you commit suicide you go to hell um, is partly because of a misreading of 1 Corinthians, um, but also because of this misunderstanding that if you commit suicide, then you can't ask for forgiveness after you do that, right? You're not alive anymore. So if you kill yourself, you can't ask for forgiveness. It's that same kind of idea, you know, if I, if I tell a lie, I better make sure I confess and get this cleared up before I get hit by a car or something like that. Because if that happens beforehand, that's, that's not the way that works. All your sin Sins you committed in the past, sins you committed yesterday and today, and sins coming in the future covered by Jesus Christ, covered by his sacrifice. Yes, we still make a regular practice of repenting and seeking the forgiveness of God, but it's not to, get to, it's not to make sure our bases are covered. It's a, it's, it's a regular um, admitting, it's a regular reminder, much like the animal sacrifices of the sin that is in us. I'm in a chance to thank God for the forgiveness and the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. For them all the way back at the beginning and for us and on into eternity, it is his sacrifice that saves us. And we can trust in those things. Um, That's what we have for tonight. Hope you guys will stick around for a little bit. We have muffins and cupcakes and whatever. Hang out, eat, and, uh, and, yeah, chat with us some. Scott and I are always around afterwards. We'd love to, to chat with you or answer questions or anything like that. All right.